welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Today's Bible reading is Matthew chapter 7, verses 32 to 54. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused. When they had crucified him, They divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Thank you, Nathan. Good morning, everyone. But is it really a good morning? We call Good Friday a good day, but in a straight reading of the text, it reveals virtually no good news in this passage. There's nothing good in there at all. If we read this text directly, we may end up feeling sad or ashamed, embarrassed, angry, even heartbroken, but nobody in their right mind would read this text in isolation and say, that is good. It doesn't appear from the passage that we read this morning that there's going to be a good ending. Now, most of us love movies with good endings, don't we? If you watch a e- uh, movie and it just doesn't end well, the, the goody doesn't win, it's, it's not a, a, a fuzzy feel-good movie, we, we end up feeling a little bit hollow. 
We want something better than that. We all want Cinderella to get her prince. We want Shrek to get Fiona. We don't like Jack to drown in Titanic. Do you remember the scene? Jack! Jack! We didn't want Jack to drown, did we? Well, maybe some of you did. I don't know. Maybe you don't like Leo DiCaprio, or maybe there's something wrong with you, and I can pray for you at the end of the service. But generally speaking, we're suckers for good endings. We want things to end well. We want a good story to have a good ending where the couples fall in love, where the world is saved, where the goodies win, and where the baddies lose. Now, I don't like to generalize, but I think that the women actually like those endings even better than the men. They like the romantic movies. Every time there's a new romantic comedy that comes out, a rom-com, a chick flick, uh, all the girls in my house want to see it. And they say things like, we've got to go and see that movie. Lenny and I just look at each other and roll eyes. <laughs> Lenny doesn't do that yet, but it happens on the inside. I know it. It's a man thing. It happens from a very young age. And I pick up the, the film and I look at it and I say, we've seen that before. Uh, Richard Gere and, and Julia Roberts or Leo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. And then the ladies will say, no, it's a new movie. I say, yeah, well, it's a, it's a new movie. There's new, new another actor and another actress and a different title, maybe a bigger budget. Same thing. Same thing over again. The same plot. Guy meets a girl. Guy stuffs up. Girl gets hurt. Guy pursues girl. Girl forgives guy. Guy gets girl. End of the movie. Over and over again. Just press repeat with different people. And it's just the same thing. And all the girls, every time, and all the sensitive new age guys like Craig Murphy and Glenn Burr and Ray Gunton and Dave Young, they all go, ooh, isn't that great? And it feels so nice. And I'm going to get beaten up after the service. In fact, Ray's here, I may even get arrested. We love a good story with a good ending. And today is one of the most significant days in the Christian calendar. Good Friday is a day that we remember the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But as we read it, it appears to be a tragic end to an incredible life. We read this passage, there appears that there's absolutely nothing good in it. In fact, if I started a competition today to name this passage from the text that we read, to name this day, we might come up with things like Bad Friday or Tragic Friday or Disastrous Friday or Heartbreaking Friday, but we wouldn't come up with the words Good Friday. And so the question that I want to answer today is simply this. What is so good about Good Friday? Let me start by giving you some context, because today we're in week three of an Easter series called It Is Finished. And in week one, we saw nothing good. I mean, the, the preaching was good. Dave Griffiths preached quite well, and that was great. But there was nothing good in it in terms of the circumstances that were happening to Jesus. We read that Jesus was betrayed by one of his disciples, we know that Jesus had at least 72 disciples. Within that 72, there was 12 closer disciples. And within the 12 closer disciples, there was his three closest disciples. We know that one of the closer 12 betrayed Jesus. Rocked up to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was praying. And he brought a bunch of men with clubs and swords. And he said, the one that I kiss is the one that I want you to arrest. And so he went over and he kissed Jesus with what should be a, a sign of intimacy and love. And as he did that, the men came over and he was betrayed for 30 silver coins. As a result, Jesus was arrested. He was falsely accused. He was spat on. He was slapped. He was punched in the face. All because one of his 12 closer friends betrayed him. Not only that, he was disowned by one of his three closest disciples. So betrayed by one of the 12 and disowned by one of his three closest disciples, Peter. 
Uh, after his arrest, people came to Peter and they said, uh, you are one of the disciples. You were with Jesus. You were definitely with him. Three times he said, no, 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 I never even knew the man. In chapter 26, verse 56, it says, all of his disciples deserted him and fled. Now, I don't know if you've ever been deserted by people that you felt like uh, they were meant to be friends. I know uh, we've been through stuff like that before where uh, we had a season in our life where some of our closest friends uh, who, who should have been there in a difficult time uh, all seemed to sort of turn away and to flee. And from personal experience, I can say it's incredibly painful. Uh, friendship is something that you invest in. You, you give so much of yourself. You uh, uh, step out with a sense of faith and trust and vulnerability. And, and when that is not returned or it's thrown back in your face, man, it can really, really hurt. There's probably many people in this room who have experienced similar things. Perhaps uh, it's happened previously in your life. Maybe right now you're going through something like that with people that you expected more from. I want to tell you today on Good Friday that Jesus knows exactly how you feel. In Hebrews chapter 4 it says, We do not have a high priest, Jesus, who cannot or is unable to empathize with us in our weakness, but we have a high priest who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. We serve a God who's not an aloof God, who's divorced from any sort of sense of what we're going through. We serve a God who loves us so much that he left the glory of heaven and he became one of us. He walked amongst us here on earth and he knows what we're going through because he's been through what we're going through in life at an even more painful level and he came through perfectly. And so as a result, we can turn to him, and when we turn to God, we won't find an aloof God, we'll find a God who is empathetic, a God who will extend compassion and grace to help us in the difficult circumstances of life. Jesus was let down by those closest to him, and that's what we learn about in week one. In week two, David Young preached, and we saw that Jesus went before Pilate. And the crowd, as we saw in the skit a moment ago, decided to release a dangerous criminal by the name of Barabbas instead of releasing Jesus. And so Pilate, as was the custom, said, I can release one of these guys, Jesus, who essentially was an innocent man, or Barabbas, who was a dangerous criminal, who do you want me to release? And they all cried out, Barabbas. And he said, well, what do you want me to do with this innocent man, Jesus, who I find no fault with? And they yelled out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, all in unison and one accord. And so as we looked at week two and we continued through the Easter story, we saw that there was still no good news. There was nothing good in the account at all, which brings us to today's passage. And surely if this is Good Friday then today is going to get better, right? No, wrong. In this account, things get even worse. It starts with Jesus being so exhausted. He's been beaten. He's been flogged. He's been whipped. He's so exhausted that he cannot even carry his own cross. A man called Simon is forced to carry it for him, and they come to a place called Golgotha. I mean, even the sound of that place doesn't sound like a place you'd want to visit, does it? 
Golgotha. It doesn't say that they, they, made, they read, led Jesus to Fairy Meadow or to Rainbow Hill. No, they brought him to Golgotha, which verse 33 tells us was known as the place of the skull. And why was it known as the place of the skull? Well, scholars have a few different views on that. Uh, some scholars say that the actual cliff face or the hill that those crosses were put on was in the shape of a skull. There were two holes in it and they looked like eye sockets. And so as you took a step back and you look from a distance, the shape uh, of, the, of the cliff actually made it look like a skull. And so they said it looked like the hill of the skull. Other scholars say it's because people were regularly crucified there. There would have been skulls around on the ground, uh, or at least in the cemetery that was uh, right next to Golgotha. We're not sure, but whatever the case is, this is not a place that you would choose to visit on a family outing. You wouldn't wake up one day and say, kids, guess what? We're going to go on an outing today and you can choose where we're going to go. We can go to the museum, and we can go to the park, we can go to the play centre, or we can go to Golgotha. They're not going to go, Golgotha, yes, let's go there again. This is not the kind of place you would want to find yourself. It was dark, depressing, somber, an eerie place which carried the stench of death. A place you would avoid at all costs. And yet on this day, this is where Jesus, the sinless son of God, found himself. This is a terrible day. He gets to the place of the skull, Golgotha. And we read there that he's once again abused by the soldiers. In verse 35, it said, When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge, which said, Jesus, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, this was not a, a term of endearment. It's not like, you know, Michael Jackson or Elvis Presley, the King of Pop. It's not like Michael Jordan, the King of Basketball. No, they're mocking him. What they're trying to get across is that a king doesn't find themselves being crucified at the place of the skull. And so they're mocking him. The account tells us that they get a crown of thorns and they ram it into his skull. They put on him a scarlet robe. They put a staff in his hand. They start to bow down and they mock him. They spit on him again. They strike him again. In this account, we see that Jesus was abused by the soldiers. He was also mocked by the general public. The sign, the King of the Jews, the Gospel of John tells us, was written in three different languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. It shows that there was a cosmopolitan crowd gathered and also walking past at the time of the crucifixion. And reading the sign, the general public yelled out and joined in with the mocking. Now, I've got to say, I experienced this once in my own life. Year 8, Cheltenham Secondary College. Something happened on the back of a miracle. The miracle was I got awarded a mass award. Now, if you know me, I am disgusting, disgraceful at mass. I am woeful at mass. I think it must have been uh, one of those multiple choice things and I just had a good day and I fluked all the right answers. But whatever the case was, I won a Westpac mass award. And so I had to get up in front of an assembly of a thousand people to receive this award. Should have been a great day. And so I start walking up the steps as my name is called. And I get to the, the top step and I'm walking up quite gracefully, uh, chest puffed out a little bit saying, I am a mass genius. And this could be the start of a whole new life for me. And I get to the top step, but instead of stepping over the top step gracefully, I stumbled over it. Now, when I say stumble, I don't mean like, oh, like that. I mean, <laughs> hands down, face first on the stage in front of a thousand people. 
one of the most embarrassing moments in my life. I, I could feel my face going as bright red as a tomato. I was humiliated. I could hear everyone laughing and I felt like crying and just running off the stage. But I stood up and I didn't look at the crowd at all. I just composed myself and I thought if I can just get to the principal and receive my certificate, I can get through this. And so I'm walking towards the principal and I notice that he's also got a red face. I think that's nice of him being embarrassed for me. But I realized as I got closer, he was trying not to laugh. He was going, <laughs> he's making that noise and he put his hand out to shake my hand. I grabbed the certificate and said, you, I'll take that. And I walked off the platform. I got to the stairs and I uh, very carefully this time walked down the stairs and I'll never forget walking past the front row. Everyone was still laughing and there was two guys. I don't know who they are. I'll never forget them. They were pointing at me with their mouth <laughs> like that wide open, making all sorts of noises like I could hear what they had for breakfast and they were laughing their head off at me. And for the next couple of months, I would walk around the school ground and people who I'd never met, swear I'd never seen these people in my life, they would yell things out to me. It wasn't compliments about the Mass Award. It was things like, uh, how was your trip? Uh, when's my postcard coming? And they would laugh and scoff and it was humiliating. People I didn't know giving me a hard time. Jesus experienced exactly the same thing on this day. People were walking past and it says those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you said you were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come on, you hero, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. The religious leaders, they also joined in the mocking. They should have known better, but they yelled out, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's meant to be the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. And if he does, then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. To make matters worse, the criminals on either side joined in. Verse 44, in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. This is a bad, 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 bad day. What we're reading about is the greatest tragedy, the greatest injustice in human history. And we can think to ourselves, well, it can't possibly get any worse than that, to be beaten and flogged and let down by all of your friends and crucified on a Roman cross. It, it can't get any worse than that. But even if we were thinking that, we're still wrong. Because we come to the part in the account that's the very worst part of this whole story. The moment where God the Father turns his back on his one and only Son. Verse 45 says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lime sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just recently I had a call from a friend of mine, a person I used to pastor. They now pastor in their own right. And just a couple of weeks ago, they rang me and they said, Luke, um, I need to come and see you. I don't know anyone else I can talk to. Uh, I feel like I'm going through a crisis. And I know we haven't seen each other for a while, but can I come down and see you? I said, no worries. And so that afternoon, they drove down to Pakenham and we sat down and we met over lunch. Uh, As they were making their way down, I was thinking to myself, what could this possibly be? Have they made a big mistake in ministry? Have they lost a loved one? Are they going through an identity crisis? What could be so bad? So we sat down over lunch and 
I could tell that they'd been crying. And as we started to chat, it became clear what the issue was. They said, my life doesn't seem to be going the way I thought it would go. I pray. It's like God doesn't hear my prayers. And if I could sum up the way I'm feeling right now, I, I feel like God has abandoned me. This person was crushed. I feel like he's, he's walked away from me. Now, I didn't believe that to be the case to be the truth. So we talked through it. We prayed through it. And I think by the end of it, this person felt a lot better. But the worst thing imaginable surely in life is to feel like even if everyone else has left us, that we'd be abandoned or forsaken by God himself. Jesus suffered incredibly in a physical way on that cross. He suffered painfully in an emotional, relational way, abandoned by everyone he knew. But the most horrific suffering on that day was the spiritual suffering as he was forsaken by his father. Crucifixion started at nine o'clock in the morning. For the first three hours, Jesus hung there in the daylight, dying on the cross. But at noon, 12 p.m., everything went completely dark in the land. This is recorded in the Bible. It's also recorded in secular history books. This is a known fact that over the land came this incredibly strange darkness in the middle of the day. It wasn't a strange eclipse. I don't believe it was some phenomena in nature. I believe it was symbolic of the fact that God's wrath, the wrath of God the Father for the sins that we've all committed in this moment were being poured out upon his one and only Son. Jesus Christ on the cross took all of the sin of mankind upon himself, every sin, all of our shame, the mistakes we make, the times we let one another down, the times we've disobeyed God's, every every crime that's been committed, every lie, every evil thought, every bit of jealousy, all wickedness. In that moment, Jesus took all of it upon himself. No wonder it went black. Bible teaches that, that God is holy. He is love. He is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And in that moment, Jesus became sin on our behalf and God the Father couldn't even look at his only son. It's a tragedy. Galatians chapter 3 said that Jesus became a curse for us. Upon him was the curse of sin, the curse that breaks down our lives and our relationships and every part of us, the curse that breaks down creation. All of that was placed upon Jesus at the cross who died for it. It was an incredible sacrifice. But none of this answers the question, why is any of this good? Why is today called Good Friday? Well, if you're a Christian here today or uh, most people here today would know that this isn't the end of the story. We know that Good Friday can only possibly be good because there's a Resurrection Sunday. That three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering the power of sin and death. We're going to talk about that on Sunday. But there's one verse in this passage that gives us a glimpse of what was to come. There's one thing that we can hang our hat on and say it's that one thing that will point to why this day could possibly be called good. And it's found in verse 51. In verse 50, we see that Jesus finally died. So he cried out again in a loud voice and he gave up his spirit. But then in verse 51, it says, At that moment, that exact moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now we might think, well, what's so good about that? What is relevant about a curtain in an ancient temple? 
Um, well, this is a, a very significant thing. Church history tells us that the curtain was two foot thick. It's not some flimsy curtain that could just tear in the wind or if someone leans on it the wrong way. This was two foot thick. And at the moment Jesus died, it tore not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. And this is a very, very, very significant moment. You see, in Jesus' time, during his lifetime, the temple in Jerusalem was the center of Jewish religious life. The temple was a place where animal sacrifices were made. It was a place where they worshipped according to the law of Moses. And in this temple, there were a whole bunch of outer courts. There were courts for Gentiles and courts for men and courts for women. And in the middle, there was like a, a holy place where the, where the priests only could go. And then within the holy place, there was a tiny little room called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where the presence of God dwelt on earth. And what separated the Holy of Holies from everybody else was this massive curtain that basically communicated, you cannot come into the presence of God. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. God is holy. They don't mix. And so you weren't able to go into the presence of God. There was only one person who was allowed to go beyond that curtain one time every year, and that was the high priest. So the high priest would go beyond the curtain And he went in there and his job on that one time every year was to bring a sacrifice. And so he would bring an unblemished lamb uh, and he would bring it and and that lamb would be killed as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. Book of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We know that God is love, but part of his love is that God is a just God as well. And when we do things wrong, they don't deserve not to be punished. We deserve to be punished for our sin. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And so when the high priest went behind that curtain and that lamb was sacrificed, uh, that, that was a, a symbolic gesture that that lamb was being sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people so that they could continue in relationship with God. Now, it seems a little bit strange, doesn't it, to have a sacrificial system like that. I'm so glad that that we don't have it today. Can you imagine all of us rocking up today with sheep and, and cows and all sorts of unblemished animals and we come up the front with a big knife and there's kids in the service, isn't there? I'll stop it there. But can you imagine the mess? If we had to do that every week to, to try and somehow atone for our sins, it seems kind of strange. But the truth is that sacrificial system was only ever a temporary measure which pointed always to something greater to come. That sacrifice pointed to the ultimate once and for all sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. And when he hung on the cross and he said it is finished, he was dying in our place. When his blood was shed, it was shed for our sin. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And so the moment Jesus died, it rendered that whole sacrificial system obsolete. It was no longer needed anymore that we would bring sacrifices because Jesus is our sacrifice. We can look to him. We know that the price has been paid for our sins. And so the moment he died, that curtain tore because it symbolized that no longer would we be kept out of the presence of God. But in Christ, we can come into his presence confidently and boldly. You see, sin separates us from God, but Jesus took that obstacle upon himself. He removed it, and when we accept what he did, sin no longer keeps us from the presence of God. This is why I read Hebrews before where it says, let us then approach God's throne of grace to be in his presence, not held back by a curtain or by anything else in our lives, but we can come into his presence with confidence, 
knowing that we're forgiven, knowing that we're saved, knowing that Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice who died in our place. So that as we come to God, we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Before I talked about the thing that Jesus yelled out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason Jesus yelled that out is so that you and I would never have to. He was willing to be abandoned, so we will never be abandoned. This is what I told my friend the other week. He hasn't left you. He promises he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. In Christ, he says, I will be with you till the very end of the age. Jesus could have avoided all of this on the cross. Like the skit showed us, he could have called on a legion of angels to pull him off the cross and save him. That he wouldn't have to die But the Bible teaches that he endured the cross for the joy set before him. It's incredible. Jesus looked to the cross. He knew what he was going to suffer. The pain, the suffering, the abuse, the rejection, all of it. He looked at the cross, but he didn't stop there. He looked through the cross. And when he looked through the cross, he saw you and he saw me. And for the joy set before him. If I've got to go through this, if I've got to give my life and die for for eternal life, to be in the presence uh, with my heavenly Father, to be in the presence of God with uh, his people that I love, then it's worth it that God himself would lay down his life so that we could be reconciled to him. This is what makes Good Friday so incredibly good. That Jesus on the cross got what we deserved. And in him, we get what he deserves. And that is relationship with God the Father. Eternal life forgiveness. It's the greatest gift ever given. And today on Good Friday, like every Good Friday and every day, Jesus stands there. And those words are just as powerful today as they were on the cross. He says, it's finished. If you just accept what I did for you on the cross, if you accept this amazing free gift of salvation, I will come into your life. I will change your life. I will give you confidence that you are forgiven, set free, and you'll spend eternity with me. It's the greatest gift ever. And Jesus' hands are still open. And he asks the question, will you accept the gift? Because a gift is only ever really truly a blessing if we receive it. So I want to finish by asking you that question today. Have you received this incredible gift that Jesus offers. Because if not, this Easter you can. And I pray that you do. And it would be the greatest thing that will ever happen in your life, both now and forever. Today you can truly say it is a good Friday. In fact, it's a great Friday. The day that you give your life to the Lord.